You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you for uh, the worship that we've come from or that we're heading to. We thank you, Lord, for the life of this church and pray for your continued presence among us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us now as we study your word together. We ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we think through uh, the biblical text and as we think through how it relates to our lives. So together we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. And I'd like to start in Ephesians, if I might. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. If you don't, you can just listen carefully uh, to God's word. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, well-known text to many of us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, or workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then uh, a little further on in Ephesians, Paul makes this point when he is talking about the importance of a changed life, a transformed life, a life that is no longer like the culture, but has been renewed in Christ. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 4, that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now, I just find the wording here really interesting. That's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now, I think that play on Christ and Jesus points us back to the original teaching of Jesus and that Paul is identifying with that original teaching as the sum and substance of the Christian life and how we are to live. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Certainly a subtext of our reflection has been the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is not a kind of works righteousness description to the disciples before the cross and the resurrection, but it is the sum and substance of the Jesus way that is made possible by the cross and the resurrection. For those of you who have been with me for these six sessions on the Sermon on the Mount, thank you for hanging in there with me. I have, uh, I have found the Sermon on the Mount a go-to text uh, 
for Christians of all generations and Christians of all cultures. And so I've had the um, I've had the the privilege and the responsibility to speak to new believers in Mongolia. Uh, Virginia and I have made multiple trips there over the years, and the Sermon on the Mount was the first text that I used with them, with these new believers, back in the early 90s. Uh, it is the text that I've used in every one of the churches that I've uh, had the opportunity to serve as kind of a baseline for understanding how to live the Christian life. Uh, it is uh, it was a, the first text that I used when we went to Ghana to train pastors. And I find almost a, a bit of a frustration, you know, like a, an artist trying to paint a picture and not quite being able to capture it just the way your mind's imagination and vision grasp it. Uh, you know, I, I don't take this in any way of, of talking myself down. It's just that I marvel at the truth of the Sermon on the Mount and realize that no matter how long I live and no matter how many opportunities I have to, to teach it, uh, it's always not beyond me because it keeps shaping, but it's, it's hard to, for me to sense any so, sort of accomplishment in bringing it. It is never under my control. Uh, I feel that it's always out there somewhat beyond. Um, and even now, it's hard to, it's hard to put into words. Uh, and I guess the bottom line, I guess, of the six weeks is this really is something that Jesus outlines for us in terms of what it is to live for him. The character description of the Beatitudes as, as really the most effective way to evangelize, as the most effective way to edify, as the most effective way to be in the body of Christ. Always understanding my utter dependence upon the living God, throwing myself on the mercy of God, the more mature I become as a believer, the more repentant and mournful for my sins and the greater the comfort the Lord gives me. Oh, we've seen this last week in the whole political and public discussion uh, of how the secular age really doesn't have tools for handling repentance. And this is where the church does. Um, and where the gospel uh, interjects uh, into our lives to bring about that sense, not only of repentance, but of genuine guilt-relieving forgiveness. Uh, and I've been struck this time through of the Sermon on the Mount in the secular age and how the 21st century hears this sermon and the challenge that that poses for us to understand not only the first horizon, how the law shaped Jesus' response, and how now 21st century secular pagan culture shapes the response. And so when you look at the commands, you've heard it said, and then based on the law, this is what you heard long ago, to you've heard it said today. And comparing the voices of today with the law of God in the past 
and what Jesus says in relationship to both the religious option and the secular option. It's a new and radically different way to both. Um, and understanding the value of a visible righteousness that is meant to impress the world with love instead of hate and purity instead of lust and fidelity instead of infidelity and a hidden righteousness where the praying and giving and fasting are not secular coping strategies. So I quote, I'm spiritual, but uh, not necessarily religious. And you look at these sort of spiritualities as a way to make it in life. No, this is communion with the transcendent majestic God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My praying and giving and fasting is in relationship to him, and it's in a way done in secret. Uh, not done in embarrassment, but done in secret so that my Father in heaven will give out the reward. And then these freeing up prohibitions. Don't worry about storing up treasure on earth. Store it up in heaven. Uh, don't worry about your material items. And you're realizing, oh, Jesus saying that in the first century versus saying it in the 21st century where all of us are rich young rulers. Um, the issues that that involves. But the freeing up of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And then the simplicity on the other side of complexity, ask, seek, knock. Um, the beauty of uh, and the recourse of a God who hears. And in that hearing, uh, oh, the asking, the seeking, and knocking can kind of summarize Jesus' style, the praying of the Psalms. And and the real need to come before God, both in dependence and well as gratitude, in lament and in thanksgiving, and all of that together. Well, today we come to the conclusion. And the conclusion is on your study sheet in the first column there, somewhat smaller print, uh, and I will read that. Reading from Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and following. Now, this is what to look for as I read, okay? Jesus sort of combines these, an array of metaphors uh, into an either-or decision. Uh, I don't know if any of you have read Soren Kierkegaard much, uh, but uh, that Danish Christian philosopher made much of the decisive act of choosing God. And this conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount would underscore that, or Kierkegaard underscores that tr this truth. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves, and by their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit like a bad tree, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. 
Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it is, its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. He sure didn't teach like the scribes. Number one, in the right column, expressive individualism has a grip on the Christian imagination. And this has been a running theme as we have looked at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that we have to be careful that the dynamic forces of culture do not overshadow who we have become. And that the Spirit of God drives us into the text to truly understand what it is not only to be saved by God's grace through faith, but it's not anything we can boast in, but that we have become God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And that that's a lifelong project. So one of the things we said at the outset was that the Sermon on the Mount is the sum and substance of what Jesus meant by the easy yoke. It's the italicized print there. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, is that yoke really easy? Have what we've been describing as the expectation and the reality of the Christian life, is that easy? Is the yoke easy? Now, in our culture, number two, easy is synonymous with user-friendly, stress-free, laid-back. Easy means no effort, no pressure, no commitment. Easy equates with no-weight convenience, instant service, and a pain-free life. We treat faith in Christ like any other marketable product, and our fundamental self-orientation is that of the consumer. That's easy. But is it easy? That may be the easy that we're used to in terms of comprehending the cultural understanding of easy. But if you live that way, if you live according to that convenience, that comfort, that self-satisfaction, that self-orientation, that self-actualization, that self-justification, that's not easy. And the brokenness and the fragility of our lives in this culture are an indication that that kind of consumer orientation to the realities of life do not satisfy. They do not fulfill. And so number three, we're led into the reality of, of taking up a cross and following Jesus, that self-denial is the route to self-fulfillment. 
E. Stanley Jones, a Methodist minister of uh, the 20th century, especially in India, is where he served. He wrote, there are just two great philosophies of life. Nietzsche summed up the one when he said, assert yourself, care for nothing except for yourself, be strong, be a superman, the world is yours if you can get it. And E. Stanley Jones calls it a cult of self-expression. It's Darwinianism as a philosophy of life. And this cult of self-expression is ruthless in Nietzsche, and it is refined in others. And I just draw your attention to that phrase, it's refined in others. Nietzsche sounds uh, scary in his application of his philosophy of life. But what we've done in this culture is take it up with a palm, with humor, and we've refined it in a way so it doesn't seem so dangerous, but it seems so imminently practical. But they all hold that the way to find life is to look after yourself, whether by ruthless self-assertion or by refined self-culture. And Jones goes on to say, Jesus stands as the utter opposite of that and says that the way to find life is to lose it, that the way of self-realization is by way of self-renunciation. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny themselves, literally, utterly reject, and take up their cross and follow me. No two ways could be more opposed. So easy in Jesus's metaphor of the easy yoke means total dependence on the mercy, wisdom, and love of God in Christ. It means a radically new character description that is submissive to the will of God. We admit we're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We are sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness. And we've learned how hard it is to depend upon ourselves. Before Jesus, we can finally admit it because Jesus slays the fatted calf of self-esteem. He quips uh, in the context, he, he wrote a book on Christ uh, the Mount, on Christ on the Mount, and, uh, or the Christ of the Mount, and he quips at one point, a working philosophy of life should work. And that's just an inch, a working philosophy of life should work. And indeed, I would say this works. This works for parenting. This works for grandparenting. This works for suffering. This works for success. This works. Um, G.K. Chesterton says, you know, the, the Roman Catholic uh, writer and thinker, journalist, uh, G.K. Chesterton says that on the first reading of the Sermon on the Mount, you feel that it turns everything upside down. But the second time you read it, you discover that it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel this is impossible. The second time, you feel that nothing else is possible. Uh, so Jesus' concluding imperatives... He began with beatitudes, but he end, and not with demands, but ends with imperatives that are decisive. Modern sermons have a way of easing us out the door, uh, where you tended, where you're tempted to say to the reverend, "Good sermon, see you next week." 
But that's not how Jesus' sermon seemed to conclude. There's an extraordinary consequence to our actions. We can choose the... You see, it's not just the, you know, the, the decision kind of for Jesus at the outset. Jesus would have us understand that it's a daily decision for him. And it's a daily taking up our cross and following him. And it's not just believing in concepts about him, a creedal orthodoxy. It is about a confession of faith that has impacts everything we do in life. And so he concludes the sermon, Jesus does, with a great emphasis on choosing the right path. We can lay the right foundation or the wrong one. We would be remiss if we did not warn if he did not warn us that the responsibility for choosing wisely and discern discerning carefully and acting faithfully was ours and ours alone. Not a one time decision, but a daily decision. And as we've seen throughout the sermon, the decision to act is framed by a transcendent meaning, the revelation of God in Christ. The gospel has given us a new plausibility structure. And Leslie Newbegin uh, worked for 40 years as a missionary in India, came home to England uh, after that career in missions and realized that the West had become a mission field. He had lived in India serving Christ, working with uh, Hindus and Muslims, very effective. Um, And he's done almost all of his writing after his mission career. And that writing has had a profound impact on many people. It really was very shaping for Tim Keller. Uh, he doesn't always quote Newbigin where he's actually dependent on Newbigin, but Newbigin was a force for many um, in terms of understanding that uh, impact of Christ and culture. And Newbigin writes, It is no secret. Indeed, it has been affirmed from the beginning that the gospel gives rise to a new plausibility structure, a radically different vision of things from those that shape all human cultures apart from the gospel. The church, therefore, as the bearer of the gospel, inhabits a plausibility structure which is at variance with and which calls in question those that govern all human cultures without exception. In other words, wherever the gospel is, it's counterculture. It's cross-cultural. It is stating something new and unique and powerful. Just to illustrate that, it came up in discussion this week in my pastoral theology class. There's two, uh, I compare two different individuals on the question of church growth. And there is a a Californian by the name of John Maxwell who uh, is quite a popular Christian writer on leadership. Maxwell's thesis is good leadership is good leadership wherever it is. So you can learn uh, wherever the principles of good leadership operate, whether it's Walmart or Ford, uh, they're going to work in the church and vice versa. Leighton Ford, uh, the brother-in-law of uh, the late Billy Graham, has a very different point of view He says, the gospel changes everything and the leadership that is peculiar to the church and to leading brothers and sisters in Christ 
and to proclaiming the gospel is radically different from anything else you're going to find in the world. I agree with Leighton Ford and with Leslie Newbigin that there's a radically different plausibility structure as to how Christians are supposed to operate within the world. And I don't think Harvard Business School is teaching the Beatitudes. But I think Jesus is teaching those Beatitudes. And those Beatitudes, I think, would have a radical impact for the Christian living and working uh, in the Harvard atmosphere. Jesus concludes with three imperatives. Enter through the narrow gate. And as I've said so many times before, you can always uh, visualize our narrow doorway in the nave uh, into the rest of the church. Uh, and most people at the Advent pass through that door. I hope we really should put this on above the door, enter through the narrow gate. Number two, watch out for false prophets. Number three, build your house on the rock. There's nothing a lot very confusing about these, is there? These three imperatives focus on the difference between external appearance and internal reality. All three do. It's as if Jesus said, don't be fooled. There is a greater righteousness, a true righteousness, a heart righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So we face a choice between two ways that are radically different, but not necessarily obviously so. Um, There's a subtlety in all three of these. The broad way and the narrow way. The broad way would represent that which is appealing and popular and the way of the majority. The false prophets that are dressed like sheep but are actually ferocious wolves, they look appealing. And they are attractive. They look like sheep, but in reality, they're your enemy, but you don't know that. And then that third, you can build a beautiful home on sand and not the rock. So all three has this sort of tendency of the external appearance versus the internal reality. And Jesus is calling for a decisive action of really the real you. Number five, uh, beware of the broad way. John Wesley described the popularity of the broad way. Many argue that uh, during uh, these six weeks, uh, for the first time, I read John Wesley's 13 sermons on uh, the Sermon on the Mount and, and found them really helpful and incisive. Uh, many argue that their way is right because it's Broadway, and the narrow way is wrong because there are so few who find it. Now, isn't that part of the dilemma of the Episcopal Church? The spirit of the times versus the word of God in the ancient tradition. Those who have chosen the broad way are polite, they're well-bred, they're intelligent, they're eloquent. This is Wesley. They are powerful, rich, and persuasive. And he goes on describing in a page or so how attractive the broad way is. But the gospel, he insists, is not popular and it runs counter to the spirit of the times. It's that which is designed to make the public high school student who's a believer feel very awkward and out of place in the high school culture. 
becomes incumbent upon us preparing young people to go to university to understand that their plausibility structure is radically different from the normal plausibility structure in the university classroom and to understand that their view of sexuality is really important and for their best and for fulfillment. Those who enter through the narrow gate are the opposite. Wesley describes them as people who have no learning, eloquence, authority, or power. Uh, so by comparison, Wesley says, you know, the, the broad way is the way of success in this culture. The narrow way is the way of, of humility. Um, Wesley's description echoes the apostle's perspective when he said, but God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Uh, that's a kind of sobering description, especially for middle class and upper middle class uh, Christians who have had the success of education and the success of, uh, of work and who have applied themselves to life and wherever the Christian life seems to take place and take rooted um, and really follow the way of Jesus, it does often lead to prosperity and success because of the integrity, because of the uh, importance of uh, the work that is done and, and all of that. Nevertheless, I think we need to keep coming back to the first century reality. And uh, in the 21st century, as we seem to go back to the future, um, I think it's important for us to understand the humility of the cross and to be a church that understands that it's not the successful and the powerful uh, that are drawn to Christ as much as the poor and the needy. Both need Christ. A friend of mine, Cole Hoffman, uh, is a pastor of a large church in, um, in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, he's uh, studied at Beeson, did a doctorate of ministry at Beeson, and he's also on our advisory board. And uh, he said one day several elders came to him in the church very excited because the VP for FedEx was visiting. And, uh, you know, they saw a power figure that had come into the church. And wouldn't it be great if he decided to come regularly to our church? And in the course of the morning, Cole also met a house painter who was there with his wife for his first visit to church. And Cole commented to me, he said, I know that our church will really be mature. We'll have arrived when we're as excited about the house painter visiting us for the first time as we are for the FedEx VP. In fact, Cole said, I had already gotten a heads up from the pastor of this VP FedEx church that he was there that day because he was disgruntled with his church. Well, Wesley concludes, strive to enter at the narrow gate. Now, don't, don't take issue with his word strive, okay? I think it's a valid word. I, these, uh, I think I could find something equivalent to what Luther would say. 
even if Wesley and Luther have a very different view maybe of uh, how they frame the law and gospel, uh, I think we should feel some pressure to strive to get through the narrow gate. I think we should feel that, that desire. Uh, we're strivers in many areas. We're strivers for, uh, for contracts. We're strivers for A's. We're, we're strivers for people to think that we're really helpful and, and we seek to, to satisfy them in the right way, in a good way. But strive to enter at the narrow gate, not only by this agony of soul, of conviction, of sorrow, of shame, of desire, of fear, of unceasing prayer. That, he seems so ancient at that point. <laughs> or, or maybe so 18th century, 1700s writing. Um, but I think we should feel some of that pressure. Not that our salvation's on the line. Not that we question God's grace. Not that we feel unaccepted by God. But in the midst of that, uh, yeah, some agony of soul to get this right with God's help and by his grace. But likewise, by ordering your conversation aright, by walking with all your strength and all the ways of God, the way of innocence, of piety, and of mercy, abstain from the appearance of evil, do all possible good to all people, Deny yourself and your own will in all things and take up your cross daily. Be ready to cut off your right hand, to pluck out your right eye, ties in with Mark's uh, sermon, and throw it away to suffer the loss of goods, friends, healthy, goods, friends, healthy, all things on earth so you may enter, should have said health, all things on earth so you may enter the kingdom of heaven. Strive. Work out this Sermon on the Mount as God has worked in you his salvation. Um, beware of false prophets. <coughs> they come in disguise and under the pretense of doing good and projecting love, but they produce bad fruit. We had an Anglican Institute uh, at Beeson this past week. Um, on Tuesday and Wednesday, and kind of the range of uh, Episcopal, theological, Anglican perspectives were represented at this institute. And uh, Andrew gave just an excellent, gospel-rich, Christ-dependent, word-honoring statement really did I was very proud to sit there you know because uh, I think it's it's really important when somebody from the Advent speaks at Beeson whether it's Deborah who's preached there or or Andrew um, because I know when they speak so effectively that students understand why I'm at the Advent and uh, and that's that. Uh, I think that they could hear them and see. I think the a Advent's an anomaly within the denomination, and I'm an anomaly within the anomaly. <laughs> but, 
But it's under the gospel is what unites us. It's it's the truth and reality of the Sermon on the Mount that that unites us. Um, I was very proud to own the Advent identity with Andrew speaking, and right in the pew, represent with me, sitting with me, was a person who embodies and represents the spirit of the times and a very different understanding of uh, what Episcopalian means and the reality of the church. Uh, and it's not that Andrew has not shared this in many occasions in many different settings, but it was done so well um, this week. Beware of the false prophets. They come in disguise under the pretense of doing good and projecting love, but they produce bad fruit. They may mean well. They may be very well-intentioned. True prophets... But what's the difference? The difference is what I think best in my head versus what the word of God has challenged me to submit to. That's the difference. True prophets bring the gospel to proud, passionate, unmerciful lovers of the world so as to produce lowly, gentle lovers of God and people. That's a beautiful expression. We preach the gospel so that proud, passionate, unmerciful lovers of the world so as to produce lowly, gentle lovers of God and the people. Um, these false prophets may be gifted, they may be talented, able to perform great works, but what they have done is convert the gospel of grace into a promotional performance that feeds their pride and ego. It is their outward display that counters the meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in, in its entirety. And again, Scott McKnight, who is very effective on the Sermon on the Mount in his book, simple acts of obedience are more valuable than extraordinary powers or spiritual gifts. For Jesus, there is a categorical difference between charismatic giftedness and the ordinary fruit of love, compassion, and mercy. So there are those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do outstanding work? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Number seven, beware of building on the sand. Jesus states that the difference between building on sand and building on the rock comes down to hearing these words of mine and putting them into practice. Now, again, uh, what we do counts. Who we are in Christ is real and it's going to play itself out. A working philosophy of life should work. Hearing these words of mine and putting them into practice. And I think that there's there's strain there. There's stress there because uh, I do not think a biblical view of sexuality is something that is either convenient, consistent, or conducive within our culture. But this is what we practice. This is what we are committed to. In a picture, this is the sum of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Gospel orthodoxy is not mere verbal confession and external religious conformity. Talking head Christianity says, Lord, Lord, but fails to be transformed by the word of God. And Luther says this really well in his treatise on the Sermon on the Mount. The doctrine is good, and a precious thing, but it is not being preached for the sake of being heard, 
but for the sake of action and its application to life. So the word is proclaimed not just to be heard, but to be put into effect, to have it transformed, to change it. It is a living word, a word that cuts, as we know, sharper than any two-edged sword. We might like an indecisive maybe, the kind of middle-of-the-road Christianity that is all too common today, but what Jesus gives us instead are either all alternatives, two ways, broad and narrow, two teachers, false and true, and finally two foundations, sand and rock. And the message ends on a parable about two kinds of builders, one who builds on rock and one who builds on sand. The contrast is between wisdom and foolishness, the Jesus way and the world's way. And the metaphor of the rock to me leads us into that pivotal point in Matthew 16 where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? They list complementary points of view, including the prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. The metaphor that closes the Sermon on the Mount ties into that pivotal central text. So there we have it. The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. The decisive call to build our house not on sand, but on the rock. Let's take that exhortation into the way we relate, the way, the way we do our work, um, the way we pray for others, the way we uh, live our life in the secular arena uh, for Christ and in accord with the Jesus way. So thanks for hanging in for these weeks uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And it won't be the last time, I don't think. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Please bless my sisters and brothers in Christ. Help us to build our lives by your grace on you, the rock. Help us to put into action what you have taught us to do and to be. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.